Hello and welcome to the ISTC monthly podcast where you can keep up to date with what's going on at the ISTC and in technical communications in the UK and globally. The ISTC is the Institute for Scientific and Technical Communicators and our members work to make scientific and technical information more accessible. I'm Imogen Craigmile, your host. I'm a member of the ISTC and a technical author working in the logistics software industry. Welcome to February. It's been a bit of a bleak and stormy month here in the UK, so hopefully this episode will cheer us all up a bit. This month, I spoke with Ritik Sarkar, a content strategist and business development lead for a currency risk advisory firm based in San Francisco. Though he is not your typical technical author, his wide range of experience with content creation led to an insightful discussion about video content, social media and grammar. To get the conversation started, I asked Ritik about the day-to-day activities of his job. Well, so I come in and I do a little bit of light analysis that's largely looking at <clears throat> how the financial markets, basically the currency markets are faring. And we send a morning email to some of our clients in the um, in the in Canada, basically. And that's a rundown of the the the, the daily updates in the FX market. So this is everything from where the price of oil is to where dollar cat is trending to what are the calendar events in the following week that they should be watching out for. And that's more of a daily writing bit. Um, as I go on into the day, my work involves a lot of emails, uh, largely to our clients and prospects alike. Um, every month or so I do work on a thought leadership piece, which is largely our FX insights newsletters. These are both for the consumption by you know uh, treasury teams in companies and also for people just looking at our company to get an idea of where we're thinking about certain topics so it could be everything from the mundane data analysis to well if we have a war what does this mean for your fx portfolio that's so cool so do you feel like you know a lot about the economy and things like that now from doing this (laughs) yes um part of my job is being obviously being um, very up to date with the new cycle. And we have a TV which blasts CNBC eight hours a day into my right ear. So <laughs> there isn't a day that goes by where I'm not up to date on every political, economic and um, you know, equity market related news. I'm, 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 I'm pretty much as current as they come. Uh, it's it, it, it gets a bit overwhelming having to absorb some of that data, but sometimes you block out the stuff you don't want to hear. But as soon as they start talking about, well, this, this company has dropped down 30% because its board members have left, your ears perk up and it's like, oh, wow, this mm. is big. Will this affect the NASDAQ? Will this affect the dollar? How does this affect my portfolio? Hmm, wow. My retirement account might be affected by this. It's a lot, actually. Yeah, that is a lot. Do you feel like you can switch off from it or... Or is it just like constant? Like, what about when you go home after work? Are you still like watching the news and everything? It's 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 hard. It's hard. Like um, coming from a bit of a news background, you know, it's it's it's. I really like being that informed. You know, it helps me in you know regular conversations with people. Sometimes it helps me contextualize the world I you know read about because I do read about some news when I'm at home or if there's a good if there's a good juicy story. You know, it's worth. It's worth going home and just like pondering over it a little bit. There was this one where the former chief of Renault uh, escaped Japan um, and then like literally in a box. He went from the prison into like a box on a private set. Yeah. Carlos, Carlos Ghosn. 
I think they're going to make a movie or something about him. It, it reads like an absolute Hollywood script. <laughs> um, so I am able to turn it off sometimes, but sometimes I don't want to because that is something I really want to research more. And obviously, when I'm during work hours, I can't really entertain that. I wanted to circle back and learn more about the FX Insights document Ritik produces. I thought it'd be interesting to learn more about his content production techniques. It does come down to, well, you could say like 70% of an A4 sheet in two columns. So that's what it kind of reads like. Um, but it's online and we try and limit ourselves to about maybe a thousand words. Because if the intro two paragraphs aren't really engaging enough, people won't really read through the rest of it. And, you know, with um, back-end software on um, our WordPress deck, we get an idea of, like, who's reading, how much are they reading, how much time are they spending on reading. Um, but it's, it, it, we usually follow a sort of pattern. Um, it is slightly less formal than some of our corporate communication. And that's by design. Mm-hmm. Um, we, try to do, we try to strike a balance between... Um, a critical analytical piece but supporting it with examples that we've sort of seen from um, our client interactions where our clients have had to respond to certain you know large volatility events and how they've managed to reposition their dollar positions they've repositioned their euro positions or they've shifted to covering out a year ahead instead of their usual month-to-month coverage so it's it's basically trying to give people more more real world examples to support what can at times be a you know data heavy um problem set yeah i think it's a real skill that you can get information like that down to a thousand words like where did you learn such skills (laughs) (laughs) so um i did uh my master's at uh, newcastle university in multimedia and journalism and one of the courses uh, we did there was on news and journalism. Um, and that basically taught us a lot of a broad set of skills. But there was there were a few classes we had where we had to learn how to write a bit more of an editorialized piece. We were given, you know, I think about five or seven pages worth of content. And we had to um, slim it down to a brief. We had to, we had to get the right... Um, facts in the right quotes to support it and also make it read like a piece that's informative but uh, yeah I was largely crafted uh, during my program and then I worked at um, an Indian news uh, website called the Quint for nearly a year where I was putting out a lot of uh, daily news copy as well as enterprise stories which I'd have to source pitch and produce myself. Do you have a lot of people on your team that you work with or is it mostly do you just do a lot of work by yourself then? Or does anyone peer review what you put out there? So one of our analysts does look at what I do as well as my boss. Um, I'm the, the impetus is largely on me to come up with the initial drafts. And then our executives will look at it and give me feedback. And I'll, I'll take the feedback and make it better. It's, it, it, it's, not, it's not a very large uh, pyramid that I have to go through. I'm given a lot of responsibility on my own. That's cool. Yeah, that's like me. Do you enjoy that, though? Sometimes I find it a bit isolating. It is. It is. It can get very isolating. You have to find things that really help you, you know, make it more interesting and find topics that you can pitch that make it that w- would will be good for you. But yeah, it can it can get quite lonely. Circling back to you were talking about how 
things are moving on to video content and everything. Do you see your job creating more video content, do you think? Yeah, so the so the the real benefit with email marketing is that written content is just one part of it. Um, in the past times, I've been doing very basic animation, either on Prezi or on um, PowerPoint on, you know, certain market movements. And like we have this end of the year piece where we'll show the performance of currencies throughout the year on sort of like a, you know, an up and down um, graph um, as compared to the US dollar normalized to 100. And we interspace that with the key headlines from that week. So people get an idea of how the currency is moving. And if there's a spike in the currency and they can see the news headline at the bottom, it's like, oh, that's why it happened. So it's really, it was a really useful tool for us to send to our clients who were doing, you know, year-end reviews for their board members or their shareholders. And some of it, some of our animations was directly used in those conversations where they were able to illustrate that their performances were directly affected by market movements. Uh, sometimes, you know, when they're talking about how our treasury teams performed, if the markets have been bad, you know, sometimes it's hard to really convey that because it seems like a easy excuse, like, oh, the markets were really bad. We weren't able to make these trades or cover off this much. Then they can see the animation piece that we put in and the data table that we provided with it and say, hey, it was, you know, I, I can take an example. It was, um, it was Iran blockading the Strait of Hormuz, not letting any oil go through which spiked the canadian dollar this high and it was too high for us and we weren't in that period of time where we needed to sell canadian dollars to cover up our u.s assets so yeah. we won't be able to make that decision at that time so it's a it's a visualizing tool anything which helps visualize um, data is definitely the future and whether this be in short animations even gifs videos a very effective tool but also to be used sparingly and in a format where people are able to easily digest it. Do you use any particular standards in your job? Or I know you talked about using like Prezi and PowerPoint. Do you have to follow certain, um, what's like company guidance on, on how to style present guides. things? Yeah, style guides. That's the word. <laughs> um, we don't really have one because before I came in, our content for newsletters and marketing was not very extensive. So I was in the rare position where I had some freedom to build, you know, a bit of the company's corporate language towards the branding side. Um, I do tend to follow largely, you know, certain certain styles that I've absorbed from different publications and different analytical teams and desks and learning what works for them and sort of applying it with our own voice to our company. Um, there are some editorial styles that I follow largely um, from Bloomberg, and Bloomberg does release release style guides for their work. So certain times, you know, it's 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 a bit of like sentence structure, you know, sometimes for what kind of pieces are the ideal lengths of words you want. I use Yoast SEO, which is built into my um, into our backend WordPress, and that helps give a score of reading, of um, engagement, delivery. Um, active to passive voice, sentence length, um, your regular grammar check. So these are like very good things to go through. And I feel that people of any writing discipline should have a, you know, a form of like Grammarly or Yoast SEO to be able to check because when when you're when you're so focused on your writing and you take a step back and you're trying to correct yourself, 
you won't see it unless so sort of like outside entity looks at it. And for some people, you know, if they rely on one person to copy check their work, it becomes it becomes a bit too reliable, it becomes a bit too easy for them to do that. But when you have, you know, a sort of digital software that aggregates the best, you know, performing written word across the internet and tells you that these are the adjustments you can make. I mean, one of the things I had to really shift towards was passive to active voice to get my sentences to shine a bit brighter and get them to be more engaging. So that's something that US SEO taught me a lot about. Grammarly is a great tool. It's a tool used by companies and it's used by uh, students alike. And it's, it's, it's very useful in tightening up your um, tightening up your copy and getting it to be a bit more engaging. Um, and obviously um, having the right keywords, you know, gets visibility higher. And the higher visibility means more eyes on your copy. More eyes on your copy means a greater impetus for you to get it right. Yeah, it's 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 definitely something that a lot of writing professionals should tell their companies about. But there is a fear that the company would say, oh, well, I thought you'd know, know how to do this and you wouldn't need it. Now mm. you need this extra thing. And yeah. I was like, of course I do, because everybody needs support. Yeah, you know, a programmer will need will need better computing power, and a programmer will need access to GitHub and other forms of um, uh, open source code editing because it helps them, you know, refine their processes. And this is something that will help me refine my processes. And if you can get a Grammarly subscription for me, I can do the job of two people. You won't have to spend money hiring and paying for insurance of one other person because this little add-on will help my work so much more and will get me to work even more productively it's like it's like telling them it's it's like you know talking about a certain course which could help you like um your madcap flares like it's it's something that they're investing in that'll help you do even better so think of grammarly as just something like that but if it comes from you it, it shows that you're taking the initiative and you're telling the company that this will really help and it won't just be for me. You could get like a company subscription, which could work for anybody who's writing it. So if the, you know, if the executive is writing a really long email, you can use Grammarly and make it a lot better. And yeah, that's true. Long, I think people, yeah, people are letting their head down about that. And it's, it, it'll be interesting to see how it's adoption, large scale. I was intrigued to know the various sources of information Rittig used when creating his documentation. So it's, 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 it's largely our research that comes from different sources. So we, so all advisory firms and analyst firms subscribe to certain data sets or certain places which, um, you know, aggregate data. So there's continuum economics, capital economics. These are just two sites which charge um, enterprises for certain data. But we do have a subscription to the Bloomberg Terminal. And the terminal gives real world news and oftentimes, you know, analytical updates. So we find it beneficial to read them to see generally what markets are thinking, but our content is still more currency based, but also has to account for different geo geopolitics. Um, so it is proprietary in one sense, but data is aggregated and gathered from various different sources. Um, even Scotiabank, FX, BMO. So sometimes big financial institutions will release their own, you know, editorials or data sets which will basically give you more data to, you know, comb through, not comb through, but to understand, you know, the, the numbers behind the market events. Yeah, I was just thinking it sounds kind of similar to my job in that I get, 
I get the information on the software from the developer. I get the information from them and then I have to turn it into something like readable for the customer. It sounds like you get a lot of information, you turn it into something valuable for the people that need it. It's very like similar, similar skills, but I think what you do sounds a lot harder. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, 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 it's, it's not really that much of, you know, one is more difficult than the other. It's the craft of writing is totally informed by what you have and what you can present. And B2B versus B2C audiences, they are different in the sense that when you're writing for a general customer, you know, there are a lot more things you have to take into consideration is that you have all this heavy data that can really change their opinion. But unless you're able to present that data in a way that they that affects them, it's useless. Now, when you're writing to a bit more of an audience that is informed about the subject matter you're writing about, it you you get away with taking some liberties, like some assumptions and understanding. But as a writer, those assumptions and understanding might come as second nature to you, but they probably don't to a lot of other people. So if you're writing about, say, if you're writing for consumers, if you're writing about, um, I don't know, if, let's take a market research topic, uh, the different strengths of laundry detergent and why um, one is more eco-friendly than the other and you should consider the eco-friendly options. Unless you could you could give all these things about, you know, in the long term, the prices will be better and you'll be helping the environment. Maybe you could claim it as a tax credit later. It hasn't happened. You might lose the customer who's saying, well, I'm going to be paying 90p for that you know, box of Surfaxal powder. I'm just going to keep doing that. So it's, it's, it, it's difficult versus if you're talking to someone in a B2B audience and you're saying, well, it'll be more beneficial for your company to pivot towards these more you know, ecologically responsible things because it'll help boost your corporate social responsibility. It'll, it'll give you something to you know, share towards shareholders. It might get you better investments. So it's, it's a dichotomy in being able to effectively communicate to certain audiences and sometimes having the privilege to talk to audiences that are very informed versus talking to audience whom you need to convince. Okay, so you just mentioned like B2B businesses and stuff. Like I'd never heard that before, but I saw it on your LinkedIn. What are what are B2B enterprises and B2C and <laughs> Yeah, so so B2B B2B is business to business and B2C right. is business to consumer. So B2B is largely what I do. It's um sort of enterprise content when you're you're selling to other businesses um your your product. So take take for example Salesforce. Salesforce is a B2B business. It's Salesforce, the company trying to sell it to enterprises, trying to sell it to Clarity FX, trying to sell it to a uh, Bank of America, trying to sell it to, you know, anybody who needs to manage their customers. And it's not like an individual customer who has, say, a shop on eBay, you know, will use that to manage their customers because there are smaller less granular softwares which help independent businesses but salesforce on a lot on a, is 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 trying to get clients on a large scale so that's the b2b b2c is say someone who's producing a product for the mass market to consume surf xl what i had said before mm-hmm. um, they produce laundry detergent for the public to consume mm-hmm. that's a b2c business right so um and say someone on who buys stuff from people and sells it to people on eBay. That person is a C2C, a consumer to consumer. 
So that's a bit more of a niche model. But um, yeah, breaking down the the B's and C's, not the A's of <laughs> communications. Yeah, it's business to business. It's largely a product that's sold between one business to another. B two C is a product that is widely consumed by the market. My research showed me that Ritik used to work at Snapchat. I wondered what he thought about if they were a B two B or B two C business. Yeah. So in and that's a great question you brought up there because for them everyone's a consumer. For them, mm-hmm. the business is a consumer. For them, the um, end user is a consumer, and it's it's a, it's an interesting because social media, especially like Snapchat, is like how are they building up their verticals of income is very interesting. It's they're getting money from businesses who want to advertise on their platform. So essentially, you have to always think of these people as tech utilities. What they basically have is a product which gets eyeballs on it. And once eyeballs are on a product, people want to advertise, and advertise is a great way of making money. So companies will have something called sponsored content. So they'll make it seem like the content isn't an advertisement, but they're paying Snapchat to have it promoted as a story. So when you're looking through your Snapchat stories, you know, you 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 maybe see an influencer who's talking about, you know, a makeup product, but she's being but she's doing it because she's the interstitial between say Lancome and Snapchat. Lancome is playing Snapchat for an ad space, but that ad space is being used by an influencer who, you know, who usually makes regular content for you. Mm. So that's a little bit of a gray area, but like everyone is a consumer for Snapchat. And, you know, sometimes if you are an individual person and you have a message that needs to be, you know, broadcast, say you're trying to promote an event um, and you're trying to promote your band's event and you want to get more people around the city to come, Snapchat is one way of advertising yourself, and you have something called a promote option. I think you you would see it on Facebook as well. They charge you, um, you know, maybe 20 pounds for 40 minutes of promotion for everybody in a 10-mile radius of you. Right. That's another business they can get. So it's 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 sort of advertising for the consumer themselves, but it's 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 less expensive and less on a broad scale. Right. Okay. Um, this is kind of off topic, but where do you see the future of Facebook? It, only because um, I heard a rumor that they were going to shut it down in Europe. Um, did you hear that, or is that just me? Yeah. So that ha- that that largely has to do with taxation and the EU's tax rules, which are lax in other nations that Facebook advises. Um, Facebook will find a way to function <laughs> in the European Union. It will. It will. Facebook Facebook is in an interesting position because Mark Zuckerberg is banking on what's called Web3. Now, Web3 is a more blockchain integrated internet experience, which will give people more control over finances and what they consume rather than having to go to interstitials. And he's really touting what's called the metaverse. I mean, you might have seen the memes of like, you know, an animatronic Mark Zuckerberg in a digital office presenting something. I did see that. Yeah. 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 So that's, it, it, it's way out there. And he's, he's trying to, he's trying to play like, I'm going to do it while it's still in its infancy, like, and try and make the bold call, which other people are afraid to make, which Apple does on a regular basis. Like they kill the CD drive, they kill the audio jack, they kill the floppy drive. Everybody hated them. And in a couple of years, everybody did the same. So Facebook is hoping or Mark Zuckerberg is hoping he can do that. I think it's a step too far. And Facebook has to, you know, contend with the fact that they are responsible for a large amount of the disinformation. And Mark Zuckerberg can't hide 
hide behind the veil of freedom of speech because freedom of speech isn't sacrosanct in itself. There are responsibilities that come with freedoms. Yeah, and absolutely. You can't, you can't, you can't just say which one. If if you have someone who's causing mass panic through blatantly provable lies, that's a problem. And if Facebook doesn't shut that down, they're culpable. People are coming to a more cultural reckoning that social media is as much of a problem as it is a benefit, and that's going to be an interesting thing to watch out for in the next five years. Is that we need social media so badly. But are we going to continue to trust it? And unless there's an alternative, we're going to continue to. Did you do any specific training for your current job? Or have you just kind of, like you said, like you did the master's degree and that's given you some skills for it. Do you just think you've grown your skill set through your various jobs? Or did you have to do anything specific? I'm certain jobs had a bit of a training period, but it was all learning on the job. And people are finding that to be a viable option because... There is there is a weird problem where there is a labor shortage in the sense that in the United States, people want better pay because inflation, because wages haven't kept up with inflation for a record amount of time. And companies are realizing that if they invest in people who, you know, may not have this complete specific skill set, if they show, you know, an actual belief in them and their abilities and where they can take them, they're more likely to stay loyal to the company and learn with the company and, you know, take mm. that training and repay it within the company. I think this happens in the UK or it used to happen in the UK where like graduate media professionals or journalists would be hired by companies. And then after two years, they'd pay for them to get their certification with press association and they'd get their badges and come back to the company and work with them. So it's, it's, it's a very good thing to have. And I feel like, you know, that 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 could be a much better path because I believe that college and university in a certain sense has to fundamentally change what it is and what it's trying to accomplish, where the workforce will dictate the kind of skills it needs and hiring people straight out of high school but training them in the right methods to do things would be good because after two years, they'll be left with a lot of good marketable skills and you know, an education through learning, which will give them, you know, greater prospects and they won't be in debt from college. Um, so this this was like a long-winded uh, segue to the answer, but it's <laughs> that, um, yeah, learned on the job, but I feel like my situation could have been aided if situations were different. Right, yeah. Sometimes it's nice to do do that whole, like you said, like learn on the job, like a trial by fire. That's what my job was like a bit. Like I'd never done technical writing as it is because um, I'd come from the journalism background like you. But they did pay for me to do a course in Madcap Flair. Um, so I think that's cool when they do that. But also, as you say, if you've done like quite a few jobs where you've accumulated skills, the job I have now is sort of the job I got straight out of uni. So I don't think I've had as much experience as you. So I'm probably not as skilled. That's what I'd say. No, no. I mean, every everyone just needs to believe in what they what they can do and where it can take them. I think, I think people need to appreciate the journey they're on, and learn about what it is that'll get them further. I think our mm. generation is a lot better at not following the beat of the public drum and just trying to follow the beat of their own drum. And it's a good sign. And as long as there are opportunities and people to encourage them to do it, they will. 
and it's it, it, it'll be interesting to see what the next you know couple of years what the writers and media professionals look like because I feel they look different to what we were coming straight out of uh, uni. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I'm quite happy I found this podcasting. I'm quite enjoying it. What about your podcast? What is the subject for your podcast? So my subject for my podcast is completely football related. I did one on the European Championships. It did rather well. My first podcast and right now I'm working with uh, BTL, Breaking the Lines. They're an online football magazine. They've been around for about eight, nine years, got a pretty good following, and I'm going to be part of that podcast family with my podcast, The Road to Qatar 2022. That's for this year's World Cup in Qatar in the winter, and I produce podcasts bi-weekly on past topics of the World Cup and current analysis of the teams. Well, that was our chat. A huge thank you to my guest, Ritik Sarkar. If you have any questions, you can find him on LinkedIn. And now for some news. The ISTC is currently welcoming entries for the UK Technical Communication Awards. If you have anyone in mind or a team, please contact the office at istc at istc.org.uk. Also, Armada Technical Author Training is coming up in April. The course ranges from the 25th to the 29th and it is an online course. Just search Armada in your web browser and take a look at the upcoming course content. Don't forget to keep your eye out for the next ISTC meets. For more information, please contact ISTC at istc.org.uk. Join us next month for another episode of the ISTC podcast. If you have a question about this podcast or about volunteering with the podcast, please contact me at istc at istc.org.uk. A new episode of this podcast is released on the last Friday of every month. I want to once again thank our fascinating guest, and thank you all for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe and share. You can find out more about the Institute for Scientific and Technical Communicators at istc.org.uk or just search ISTC on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to tune in next month. Bye for now.